thank you for joining us for another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I hope y'all enjoyed uh, last week's episode, the special episode we had. We actually had two special episodes, but the live episode we had that was on the Ringer's Facebook, the Ringer's Twitter, um, that was on the Ringer's YouTube, that was on my Facebook, on my Twitter, with none other than my good friends, Angela Rye and Andrew Gillum, as we did the debate or whatever the fuck that was, recap. You know, we're going to have another recap show. I hope you guys spread the word about it. This week, um, we're going to have my good friends Charlemagne the God and Ebony Williams um, on to discuss and give immediate reaction to Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris. So thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe, share, DM me about guests that we should have or things we should be talking about. Today's episode, though, I have Delaware Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester. She'll be joining us for this episode. But before I get to her, I want to tackle uh, subjects in the intro that caught my attention. First, obviously, President Trump's COVID diagnosis, but also an article I came across on the 19thnews.org on October 2nd, noting that, among other things, 865,000 women left the labor force in the month of September. Listen to this again. 865,000 women left the labor force in the month of September. First. To the president's COVID diagnosis, if you've listened to our special episode on the president's diagnosis with Jonathan Martin from the New York Times, if you haven't, definitely check it out. On behalf of the team at the Bakari Sellers podcast, you know that we want to wish the president and first lady a speedy recovery. But now that we've said that, let's talk about what concerns me about the diagnosis. We've seen the medical professionals treating the president and offer timelines of when the president may have known or should have known of his diagnosis that suggest he knew of exposure well before he tweeted it out Friday morning at 1 a.m. Knowing who is running the country and the health of the president is critical for national security, but on brand, the administration's lack of transparency puts us at risk, just as his conduct around COVID already has. My gut here is that the president is far more ill than he's letting on, but unfortunately, we won't get any transparency from this White House. The political implications of this diagnosis are less clear, but I can imagine, or I can't imagine, a more stark reminder of the president's recklessness in handling his COVID than himself becoming sick. Think about this. The president who didn't wear a mask, the president who's had rallies, shout out to Herman Cain. The president who has had people around him die from this disease, all of a sudden, it all makes sense now because he himself has caused himself to get ill. My prayers again go out to Melania and the president. My prayers go out to every single person who came in contact with this super spreader event last week at the Amy Coney Barrett announcement at the White House. Listen, they may try to change tones and they may try to change the subject. But the fact is, the president, this administration is the most irresponsible president and administration we've had in the history of this country. Joe Biden was right about a lot of things in this last debate. But Friday wasn't just the day when we learned of the president's COVID diagnosis. We also had our jobs report and it wasn't good. Our friends at the 19th flagged a data point in the jobs report where 865,000 women left the labor force in September compared to only 216,000 men. And of that 865,000, one of the more damning things, almost half of these women are black and brown women. So what does that mean and why does that matter? 
It means that women of color are shouldering the crisis economically in ways that most men aren't. It means that the industries that we all rely on that over-index with women workers of color, childcare, retail, and hospitality will have to be rebuilt and reinvested in with any COVID recovery package in the first 100 days of a Biden administration. I also want to note that the same report found that white men and women have seen about 60% of all jobs lost this year come back. But for black women, only 39% of jobs lost have been regained. For black men, it was 34%. So as we elect a new president this November and we embark on recovery measures, we have to prioritize intentionality around making sure that black men and women of color in the industries where we over-index get the support they need. Because to date, that hasn't happened. And the jobs report is another reminder that a recovery that doesn't center black men and women of color is one that doesn't get the job done. Now on to our show with Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester. So I have a very special guest with me today on the Bakari Sellers podcast, and I just want everyone to welcome and say thank you to Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you, Bakari. It is so great to be with you, and I hope you and your family are well, especially the little people. Well, you might hear them. They do pop up throughout uh, the show quite often, so they're, they're around. You may hear them. Excellent. Look, I, I ask, I start off uh, asking all of our, my guests to kind of walk us through the arc of their career. And you've had a diverse set of experiences before running for Congress. So walk me through your career from your first job with then Congressman Tom Carper to your decision to run for Congress. Oh, wow. What a, what a great question. And um, well, my first, my real first job was McDonald's. And it's funny because it was like, you know, I wanted my own telephone. And my dad said, if you want a phone, go get a job. And so I actually walked up to the local McDonald's and got a job. And I think it kind of started a trajectory that always involved jobs and work. Everything from then going from there to working in a department store to um, doing internships. And um, I met my current, our current senator, who was then our congressman, at a town hall meeting. I was a grad student. I had a baby on my hip. And at the time, I didn't realize I had one in my stomach. And um, I applied for an internship in his office, in the congressional office. And I will never forget, like, even standing on the steps of the Capitol, taking the picture with the, with the congressman, thinking that maybe someday I'll be back here, standing here representing the state of Delaware. Um, oh, wow. You know, and so I worked for him in that office doing casework, um, helping people with Social Security or people who were homeless or had IRS problems. And then work, I, I felt like I kept telling people to get on these waiting lists for Section 8. And I, I got frustrated myself. And I said, there must be more we can do. So they created, um, they allowed me to move into a new position that got grants and funding into the state of Delaware. And then he became governor and I worked on the transition team. And I realized that a lot of the agencies that were dealing with families did not talk to each other. And mm -hmm. We're not helping people to to thrive. And so I became a policy advisor and then deputy secretary of health and social services. And ultimately, one of my dream jobs, secretary of labor. 
I loved that job. I wait, and wait a minute now. Do you love it enough that are you telling us something? I mean, next next January, February, you know, they got another they got another Secretary of Labor job that's going to be vacant too. We hope. No, no, that's not what I'm telling you. <laughs> All right, I'm just making. You know, I'm just trying. Are we breaking news? Okay, today I'm just here and saying you're trying to start. Something. <laughs> Want to be starting? Let's, like a let's, just, let's, let's talk about it real quick though, because you actually have one of the few. Uh, you're one of the few members of Congress who actually has a statewide seat. So how does that make your job uh, that much different from your colleagues? Explain the the context and the contours of how that makes your job a little bit different from yeah. somebody who who is is one of maybe a, a delegation. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, there are only seven uh, members like myself that are at large. We represent the whole state and two of us are Democrats and uh, me in Vermont. And, you know, the reality is you have to run statewide and you have to serve statewide. And so Delaware, a lot of people don't realize we have farms, uh, we have beaches, we got, we got financial sector and all of that. And so I represent all of that and didn't realize until recently I have the second largest number of constituents out of all the members of Congress. And what that means, especially in a time like this, is that, you know, you're dealing with COVID-19 dealing with, you know, racial unrest and the reckoning that everybody calls it at a time where Delaware had never elected a woman to Congress or a person of color. And so I take all all of that seriously. And the good thing about being the only one is that when when I have meetings with my delegation, everything's unanimous. I'm the dean of my delegation. There's no (laughs) dissension. (laughs) You know, um, the, the challenge is it means that I really value relationships and alliances. So, you know, I am in the New Dems caucus, but I'm also in the Progressive caucus. And um, because I represent a whole state and I don't think they're mutually exclusive to care about jobs and and civil rights, you know, and and environmental justice, I think is connected. And so, so it has its good parts and it has its challenges, you know, but I really try to make connections so that when we need things for Delaware, I know who to go to. I know who to go to. So I would be remiss if we didn't spend some time talking about uh, Breonna Taylor and uh, what's happening around the country with policing and accountability. What can Congress do uh, to federal law to hold officers accountable when state and local officials don't act? Yeah. Well, many of your um, viewers might know that in the House, we passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was led by the Congressional Black Caucus, and specifically um, Karen Bass was one of our, our major leaders on this. And it dealt with issues like those no-knock warrants. You know, I think all of us, I, I am, st- I think, you know, I'm, I'm all, almost speechless at this past week because, and I just got off of a, a Zoom with the fellows for our urban league here, they have a fellows program. And these are young people that are activists. They are nonprofit leaders. They're doing all of this work. And I think sometimes people start to feel dejected when they feel like, you know, how many times can we feel like we're going backwards here? And I think that that's why this moment is so pivotal in our country and in our history and presents the opportunity for transformation. You know. While we passed that bill in the House, we know it's stuck in the Senate, like hundreds of other bills that Mitch McConnell is is not going to take up. So like for me personally, I came home and thought to myself, 
we can do this on the federal level, but there are also things that people could do right in their own homes. Well, talk know? to us about, I mean, yeah, because people feel like, okay, you know, for me, it's, it's it, it not you by any stretch and definitely not the CBC, but there are members who say, well, we passed this bill and, you know, it's stuck, but that's all we can do. And black folk are like, no, no, we need, we need more. So yeah. talk to, talk to people about some of the tangible things they could be doing um, because, you know, no, not warrants and banning chocos, you could do that at your city council level. Exactly. So, so this is the thing, two things. Number one, I want people to know that I just had a conversation with Karen Bass this week, who is chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. They are still um, conversations that are happening on a bipartisan, bicameral way on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So that bill, that is not dead. There is still activity happening there. But for me, to your point, there are things that individuals can do in their own states and in their own local governments. One of the things after I had marched with activists and talked to police chiefs in my state, we kept hearing that, like, one, this is not like the whole answer, but one thing that I kept hearing was that body cameras, the activists wanted it, the community members wanted it, the police wanted it. But in Delaware, the big issue was we just didn't have the funds to make it happen. And I was like, well, what if we had a vision that we become the first state in the country that every single law enforcement officer has a body camera? Now they just got to keep them on, Congressman. So but what's tied to that is the policy that goes with it. It doesn't matter if you got, if you got it on, if you could turn it off, if you could do whatever yeah, you want exactly. with it. So again, this is again where people can be at the table and make decisions about, about policy. And how, so we're looking at the policy for them. We're looking at the funding for them and then the implementation of it. And that does, that means we don't have to wait for what Congress does. Yeah. That's yeah. something that we can do here. We, our own legislators, our own black caucus in our state, they came up with their own injustice for all agenda that they already started implementing. So my message to people is you look at all the levels. What can I do personally? How do I hold my elected officials accountable to do something? Because the thing that frustrates, I think, a lot of people is when you feel like we've been here before and then people get comfortable, then we wait till something else happens. So like even on this one, I'm like, we're going to meet every single week, even if it's for 15 minutes, because we got to hold ourselves accountable. So so to me, you know, in a moment like this where you could feel really um, dark, you know, we got to find the ways that you can do what only you can do. I know that this is a, a part of my path is to try to see some real change happen. And um, so I'm just trying to do my part. Just trying to. Do and we're thankful that you are. We, we appreciate, you know, your fighting spirit and even more importantly than just having the spirit, the ability to get things done. You know, yeah. the 435 members, they ain't but about 10% of y'all that can get something done. But I just said that you did. I didn't say that. You yeah. said that. <laughs> but let me ask you this. You're a member of the CBC, and we've seen members of the CBC increasingly become targets in primaries uh, from the progressives on the left. Why do you think that's happening right now? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier, I think this is a transformational time. And I think, number one, the fact that people are engaging, that to me... <laughs> That's a win for all of us when people engage. I just, as I mentioned this, this Zoom that I just got off of, we talked about even the disconnect sometimes between Black folks feeling their vote doesn't count mm-hmm. or does it matter if I vote? 
And so, first of all, to see people saying, you know what, it does matter if we have a seat at the table and we can do something, that's a good thing. I think that you are seeing just a wave across the country of people saying, this is what I believe in and this is what I want to stand up for. And, you know, as somebody who never ran for office until 2016, I came in with Donald Trump. I, I had never run. And I, I had never had to raise that kind of money. I had yeah. never, I didn't have that Rolodex. I had never been in a debate in well, my life. undefeated. So that counts for something. <laughs> <laughs> you undefeated. I don't take that lightly. As someone who's run for office, one, two, three, four, five times. I've only won 80% of them, but lost the last one. The last one is the one that stings, though. Oh, my goodness. We're not going to. We're not going to. 80% ain't bad. That ain't bad. Yeah, I guess, I guess. Let me, uh, along the same line there, young, a lot of younger black folks who question if the CBC is connected enough to the emerging voices for change in their districts for the moment that we're in. I take that theme from the Bush-Clay race in St. Louis. Um, what do you make of the criticism that CBC members are out of touch with their younger constituents that are on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement? And you said something earlier that I want you to tie in. How do you keep in touch with a younger voters and the activists in your own community? Because I think actually, you know, a lot of your members could probably learn a lot of lessons from uh, some of the younger members, including yourself. Yeah. Well, first of all, I appreciate you calling me younger because <laughs> I'm 58. I appreciate that. I have two millennial yeah. children. So so I appreciate that. Well, yeah, And we all know black don't crack because I was never going to put you nowhere near 58. I, I had you at 37 and a half. I love you. My son is 34. Boy, I was You got a 34-year-old? Oh, my goodness. I, yeah. Well, what, William didn't tell me that. When we were prepping for the interview, he didn't say my boss is 58. That, oh, that's yeah. something he didn't say. <laughs> and my daughter is 31. Um, but I would say um, having them, my children, and listening to them, and then expanding that out to my team, who I surround myself with, does keep me relevant. Like I believe in this roots and you know, this roots and wings thing. And so like, I literally get to be in a caucus where I have like Ilhan Omar is in the office next to mine. Ayanna Presley and I are like, you know, sister. She gives me more hell than anybody I know. I love her to death. Shout out Ayanna Presley. Cause she, she keeps it real. I'll, 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 it real and, and you know who else I love in your, in your cohort? Hmm. Congresswoman. Underwood. She is so dope. Doesn't mention, so, yeah. And and think about it. Like Lauren, one of the youngest members in Congress, and she brings it. She brings expertise. She 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 is a commanding presence already in her freshman term. And so these are some we have new members at the CBC table that that are younger, diverse, and bring different backgrounds. And I think that people, number one, need to know that. But I also think that we should not forget. I like I I maybe feel like I'm a bridge because I love the 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 intellect, the passion, the wisdom that, that um, our younger members are bringing, and also the sense of urgency. But at the same time, there are people like Jim Clyburn that I am just like uh, the fact that I got to serve with John Lewis. Yeah. I mean, you're like that, a middle child. I mean, you can you're you're connecting these generations together. That's pretty. Never, never thought of it as a middle child. I I'm, stole that. I stole that from J. Cole. Don't don't worry oh, about it. It's, it's, okay. it, it, it <laughs> oh, that's so. I don't know that. Man. 
Man, hiring can be so challenging these days, especially during COVID. But you know, ZipRecruiter makes it fast and easy. One CEO, Ali, needed to hire a multifaceted role at his wallpaper company. Check out the name of his company, though. Walls Need Love. I love that, Ali. He was looking for someone who was the right fit for his team and culture, but his search was slow going. So he turned to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies the right people for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. That's how Ali found Savannah Ray. Ali said Savannah's skills and experience were a great match for the role. Plus, she applied within a few days after he posted the job. Through ZipRecruiter, Ali has hired everyone from his head of marketing to his sales director to his lead graphic designer. But Ali's not the only one who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, free. At ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-K-A-R-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. Let me harp on your experience as a former labor commissioner. So I wanted to get your take on how we should best approach the uneven impact that COVID has had on black workers. Mm-hmm. We over-index in the service industries, hardest hit by COVID. Our businesses over-index in hiring black folk. But almost half of them may be out of business by the end of the year. Talk to us about what, what a national policy should look like if I'm not saying you will be labor secretary, but let's say that your favorite son of Delaware, Joe Biden, calls you and says, talk to me about what a national policy that would put black America back to work looks like. What do you say? Well, you know, first of all, I I cannot not acknowledge and um, send my love to all of those who are right now either have had a family member who was lost to COVID or is experiencing it themselves. Um, you might even know that um, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes mm-hmm. has recently, um, you know, I shared. Saw, I just saw that. Yeah, been texting her as well. You know, in terms of jobs and the economy, I mean, you hit on it. But since March, over a hundred thousand um, businesses have closed that will not come back. And then you look at the impact on Black businesses, and uh, you know, we know the whole you know cold versus pneumonia thing. And then you look at COVID and how it disproportionately impacts us. I'm on the Energy and Commerce Committee and on that committee, I'm on the Health Subcommittee. So first I look at this pandemic from just from a purely health perspective. Like, you know, if we don't get that the, the pandemic itself under control, then we're not gonna be able to have an impact on people's livelihoods as well. So that's the first thing. And I, Joe Biden has been very clear about that. And we gotta follow the science and we gotta make sure we do what we do on that front. As it pertains to Black folks and both work and and businesses, I have started this Future of Work Caucus in Congress, and it's bipartisan because- Talk to me. What is that? Tell me what that is. This is my passion. Like, So I thought that machine learning, artificial intelligence, and automation, you know, the fact that machines are flipping burgers, they're talking about autonomous buses, so that's jobs, good-paying jobs that Black folks and brown folks had that could go away. So- I was focused on the technology, the automation of all of this, and whether this would displace us. The Joint Center is a black think tank, and um, Spencer Overton had done research and said that 
six out of the top 10 jobs that black folks hold were at risk from automation. So I started doing my CBC sessions every year at the conference on the future of work. Well, it's been COVID-19 that really pushed the future of work. People are teleworking. They're getting their health care through telehealth, distance learning. These things we talked about forever is finally in our face. And as you said, many of the jobs, though, that are considered essential workers mm-hmm. are black and brown folks. So now you're not only concerned about your livelihood, but your life, taking your life into your hands. And so Joe Biden has, has a plan. And I mean, I don't need to, to, to necessarily tell him because luckily I've been part of the, the being a national co-chair and being a part of this. But he has a plan to build back better. And the reason why is build back better is because some people just want to go back. We don't want to go back. Part of the problem why we have these health disparities is because of the structures, the institutions, and the fact that we'll create a minority health office over here, but we won't look at every single program and every single office and see how are people really, what are the outcomes? So this Build Back Better plan that people could go to JoeBiden.com. Uh, I had to put a little plug in. Um, That's fine with me. I'm, I, I plug it enough. So keep on plugging. Oh, okay. okay. And the Lift Every Voice plan. Both talk about the wealth gap and making sure. So that's everything from capital for businesses to making sure that as we are training people for the jobs of the future, that it's based on what the jobs are and what the needs are. And that it also recognizes that even when we have the same skill sets, we're disproportionately impacted. That's the the, the new research that that we just shared at our our session that's coming out later this uh, this month for the ALC. If you have not been uh, registered for the CVC's ALC. It's not the same. It's not the same. You know what? My, go to my session on the future of work. It's exciting. Okay. It's still exciting. I may log into that. I really wish we were in person. Talk to me about Vice President Biden's black agenda and how it includes $70 billion for black college and debt forgiveness uh, for students attending HBCUs whose families make less than $125,000 a year. What what does this kind of sustained investment in our HBCUs mean for institutions like Dell State and for black families who are making attending HBCUs virtually debt free? Talk about that impact. Well, I mean, as you know, well, first of all, HBCUs are the, the lifeblood of our country. And no doubt, no doubt. My, my, I, I am now I have an honorary doctorate from the Delaware State University, but my children actually, um, my son graduated from Morgan State, which is where he met his wife, Alex and Ebony, and my daughter graduated from uh, Winston-Salem State University. And so we recognize the, just the, the significance of HBCUs and really wanted to say, let's put our money where our mouth is. As you mentioned, investing over $70 billion in public and private HBCUs and other minority serving institutions. And, you know, the fact that the educational cost, you know, we always talk about education is the key, but if, the, if, if it's so expensive, you, you can't even get to the door. And so making it tuition-free for families earning less than $125,000, that's part of the plan. $20 billion for high-tech labs and new modernized facilities. Um, 200 new centers of excellence to mm-hmm. service research incubators. And I think that's really important, especially when we talk about STEM and the jobs of the future. 
part of the goal for us is to make sure that we have the tools and the resources. And we know many times HBCUs can't even compete with some of these institutions, particularly when it when it's like research grants and things like that. So even modernizing them and making it affordable for families is really one of the primary goals of, of the administration. Well, we had the we had the Higher Education Act, which allows the Department of a U.S. Department of Education to just straight up cancel student loans. Why? Why haven't we made better use of the Higher Education Act to just straight up cancel student loans? I paid twenty four hundred dollars a month, so this is a very selfish question. <laughs> well, I think part of it too is that there's not a lot of communication out there based on what people can do. But I know that for Joe Biden, I mean, one of the major things that he has called on is that we would immediately forgive at least $10,000 of a person's federal student loans, especially during this pandemic, and also forgive, you know, tuition-related debt if you went to an HBCU, if you're earning less than $125,000. So I think, you know, looking at where we're going and providing the resources for people so so that they can even compete, not not just in the world of tomorrow, but today, you know, right now, the debt, as you know, is what was crippling folks, you know, I mean, you add that on top of COVID and, and you know, it, it, it causes what we're seeing right now. So. Yeah, you got you're gonna have anxiety getting out of this thing. So my last question to you, I'm I'm just thankful for your time. I know that you are an amazingly busy person uh, with everything going on in the world. My last question to you is: By the end of this year, President Trump will have confirmed the highest share of federal judges relative to his predecessors, and more than any other president at the end of his first term since Jimmy Carter. And Carter, I was speaking with Brian Fallon about this on my last episode. He was the last president to expand the judiciary. And that was in 1978, 42 years ago. Even when Democrats have had majorities, they don't prioritize expanding the judiciary. Can you tell us, as we're going through these debates over the court, why do you think the lower courts or just the judiciary is just is not more of a priority for the Democratic Party? I mean, is that something that you all talk about in caucus or with leadership? And how do we make this more of an educational tool and make this more of a priority for Democrats? Yeah, you know, I think that um, this moment that we're having right now, especially with um, basically, you know, the the Republicans going against their own word on um, <laughs> Supreme Court, I think is um, is is a, is a wake up call. And I think just the you talked earlier about the folks that are getting involved and engaged mm-hmm. in, the, in the process. I think that. Part of the reason why they're getting engaged, part of the reason why I got engaged is because the world is not the same and we can't we can't operate the way we always did. And so I think the courts, you know, this is one of those connectors like people back to why people don't vote. They don't see the connection between their vote and and their real life. And I think if nothing else, looking at the the special prosecutor, you know, the the, um, Breonna Taylor's. Okay, look at these things are real life examples of why the courts matter. The gerrymandering that we have seen across this country, like all of these pieces, I think for the first time, a lot of people are putting all of these pieces together to see what this recipe is and what it was for. Mm-hmm. And it was really for some people to maintain power. Great. It was built that I told, I, as I told Bill Moore, the system works perfectly. It just wasn't built for us. So, exactly. I mean, 
Exactly. Yeah, it, it worked the way it was supposed to. Exactly. What's, what's next for you? You have the ability, uniquely enough, you've, you've run statewide and won statewide. You're one of the most talented politicians we have or public servants we have <laughs> in the entire country. You really are. My my good friend and producer of the show, uh, Jared Lodehode, is, is, is married to a great daughter of Delaware. And there's just so much opportunity there and will be so much opportunity there. What, what's next for you? Other than, and don't, please don't tell me I'm just going to, I look forward to serving the citizens of my district as long as I can. You know, it's really funny because um, I am a person of deep faith. Like I, I believe in my spirit that um, each and every one of us were called for such a time as this mm-hmm. and that I have learned to not, um, to, to, to not limit God. <laughs> I mean, I never would have imagined that I would have been the secretary of labor in Delaware, or I did see myself as a congresswoman though. 30 years ago, when I was that intern standing on the steps with Tom Carper, I said, maybe one day I'll be back here. Well, I can't, I I feel that I've, I've, you know, people that know me say I've always saw myself as a congressman. Just don't tell Jim that. Don't tell Jim that. I'm not going to tell, but I'm, I will say this. Um, you manifested yeah. it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I told those, you know, those, those young people on the call before you asked, like, I keep young people close because I, I believe that, um, you know, and I told them, you got to speak those things that are not as though they were. And I, I would stand before I got elected. I said, good morning, Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester. It's like you got to sometimes you got to encourage yourself, speak it to yourself. And and right now, my goal, my number one goal with all of my being is to get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris elected. I don't know what is next for me. And I could say that with authority. I don't know, you You said, shoot, I could write a book. Who knows? God only knows. You need to, you need but, to. Boy, do I have some stories. Let me tell you. Oh, I, I just, I, I'm not gonna ask you purposefully because that's in the past, but I wanna hear all the stories about your vice presidential selection committee and task force. I want all the juice on that one. Oh, girl, I'm not spilling that to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking some time and joining the podcast. This is the Bakari Sellers podcast with an amazing congresswoman from the great state of Delaware, Lisa. Sorry, you have to let me say something about you. Sure. What's up? I'll take it. First of all, I'm so honored to be on your show. When I heard I was going to be on with you, <laughs> I, I was like telling all my peeps and, you know, <laughs> I look, I'm excited to have you. But you are such a thought leader. You have brought so much both energy and intellect to the conversations, to the discourse. And even looking back at some of the things that you have talked about, you give people different perspectives and you are, you encourage us. When I see you on television, I'm so proud and I'm so grateful and just keep doing what you're doing. You know, I don't know what's in store for you next, but if I can know let me know. And, you can and, help me. I want you to keep me in your prayers. That's what we, that's what that's, I'm unashamed. I'm unashamed for that ask. And, and, and I love your, your story of Sadie and Stokely yeah, and Ellen yeah. and all, your whole family. God well, bless you. you. And thank you for what you're doing. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Shout out to uh, William Washington. Uh, every yes. member of the United States Congress is only is only as good as their staff. So this yes. has been another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. Thank you.